0: turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. I mentioned last week that we've been making our way through the book of Acts, and uh, we took an 11-week break for the summer. We did a summer series, which, which I hope was helpful to you. The challenge with an 11-week break, however, is that it really feels less like a break and more like a full stop. And uh, I'm mindful that as we come back in, a lot of you are just trying to get your bearings. And so last Sunday, we did a a book of Acts as a whole update, and I reminded you that while we're reading about apostles and we're hearing their story, ultimately, Luke wanted us to know that this isn't just the story of the apostles, it's the story of Jesus working in and through the apostles. And he made that clear in chapter one, verse one. He talked about how in the first book, he talked about what Jesus began to do and teach, and in this second book, it's what Jesus is continuing to do and continuing to teach in and through the, the church. So we saw that last week. Today, I want to bring you up to date just in terms of the, where we are in this story, this timeline of the early church. In Acts chapter 13, we saw the beginning of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, I'm, this is the best. I love them. This is great. I uh, am not bothered in any way, but I'm just laughing because sometimes you have a day where every time you're like, focus, the focus goes. And I'm having one of those days so I'm going to just say a quick little prayer, um, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. And Lord, I thank you for every, every little um, hiccup, even, that comes with being in church together. Lord, I love every bit of it. It's a gift. And yet I'm a creature. And Lord, I confess that uh, sometimes I just feel scattered, and I am having one of those days, Lord. So I pray that you would just take my mind and... Focus me and help us, Lord, to focus and help us to look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In all the preaching courses I've taken, they would tell you, just don't do that. Just press through, press on. But if you could look inside my brain right now, it's in 700 places. By God's grace, we're coming to one place here. So we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're focusing in on where we are in this story. And in Acts chapter 13, we we began Paul's first missionary journey. If you remember, there was a church in Antioch. It was a young, up-and-coming church. And the Holy Spirit directed them to send out Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey. Which is an enormous deal, because Paul and Barnabas were the two most prominent leaders in the church. Uh, Barnabas was the unity guy. He was the, like, the, the friendly giant, it seems. Uh, and then the Apostle Paul was, th- there's no teacher like him. And the Holy Spirit prompted them and said, You're going to release these two, and you're going to send them out. And so what we found was the first intentional uh, missionary cross-cultural journey. And that began in chapter 13, and we were following it, but then again, we took an 11-week break. So I want to make sure we recognize that take that 11 weeks out, that's where we are in the story. And today, here in chapter 14, we're coming to the final leg of, of that first trip. And we find it in Acts chapter 14, 8 to 23. So would you look there with me now and hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant Living and active word to us today. Acts 14, beginning in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up, upright on your feet. And so he sprang up, and he began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as has been the case throughout the whole series, we're, we're just not going to be able to say everything that could be said about this story. There are lots of minute details that we're going to have to move past uh, because there's a lot of overlap with each of these stories. And so we've, we've touched on a lot of these topics already. We're going to touch on some of them in the future. But today, I want to really zoom in on, on this moment in time. As I mentioned, this is the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And what we see in this story is a beautiful example of gospel mission. And so I just want to look at this example, this little snapshot that we have, and I want to draw out lessons in gospel mission. And I want to explain what I mean by mission. What do we mean? Missions. Well, Mark Deffer defines missions this way. He says, while evangelism is telling the gospel, sometimes to people who don't know it, missions is evangelism in a place and among a whole people where it's largely unknown, which is what we're seeing in this story. This isn't a story of Paul being faithful in his hometown and ministering faithfully to the friends he grew up with. No, this is a story about Paul and Barnabas having been launched out into a cross-cultural mission. And it's the first time that we see in the New Testament that there are intentional cross-cultural missionaries sent out. I, I say the word intentional because... We saw missionaries in the beginning of the book of Acts, but they weren't sent out intentionally. What sent them out? Persecution, that's right. They were driven out into the world. And so we saw missions already, but this is the first time that a church has, has laid their hands on missionaries and sent them out into the world. And there's a lot for us to learn here. And y- you might ask, well, how do we apply this to our own lives? You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a cross-cultural missionary, so is there anything here for me? And I'd say, of course there is. I, I mean, First of all, there are going to be lessons here that that do apply to our evangelism, to our neighbors. And we'll point those out and we'll learn from those. But then I'd say more obviously, a story like this helps us to think through and pray through how we can pray for and equip and and find missionary partners in the world. Like when we partner with people on missions, what is it that we're looking for? What What is healthy missions look like? Everybody's got a different approach. Well, as we look to this story, we catch a snapshot of healthy gospel mission. And I want to draw out four lessons for us. Now, it's not going to tell us everything about mission. it's is a snapshot, but four important lessons for us here. First, gospel mission addresses the needs of the whole person. That's an important lesson. We see it in verses 9 to 10, where Paul says, And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Someday when I meet Paul in heaven, I want to I ask him about this. Because as a preacher, maybe the Lord has ordained for me to have such a clumsy start. Because as a preacher, you're preaching and you're teaching, and can I tell you, your brain is doing all kinds of weird stuff, right? It's happening in any moment. You're seeing every little detail. And I'm just, I think it's amazing that the Apostle Paul is in this new place, this scary place, and he's up and he's preaching the gospel. And as he's doing that, as he's looking at the eyes and seeing, do they understand this or maybe not that or maybe I'll try this, as he's seeing all the distractions and this and that, he locks eyes with a man. And he sees this man and recognizes immediately his need. And more than that, it, the text says he saw in his eyes, as he looked intently at him, that this man had faith to be made well. And I'd just love to know, what on earth did that look like? Like, what is it that you saw as you looked across this, this gathering of people that drew you to this man? But Paul saw something, the Spirit directed him, and in the midst of this sermon, you can imagine that all of a sudden, you know, the sermon kind of, there's a pause, and he looks at this man, and he tells him to stand up. And this man who has never stood in his whole life, Who was born lame? This man stands up to his feet and begins to walk. And in that moment, I mean, this this sermon, we don't we're not told exactly what Paul was preaching at this point in time. But we know that whenever Paul preached to people, what was he doing? He was he was teaching them about our great and glorious and holy God who has made us. He goes on to explain more of that later in this passage. And he points people to Jesus and his redemptive power, the one who cleanses us from our sins and, and who makes us in right relationship with God. And here in the middle of this sermon, we, he has this powerful, physical, tangible display of the redemptive, restorative power of God. And everybody in the room sees it, and it's, it's incredible. And then it's misunderstood, right? And then it sends everything into a bit of a tailspin. And there's a lot that we could say about that. There's a lot that we could say even about signs and wonders, because I'm sure within the room we've got questions about, well, how does that look today, and do these things happen? And We've already addressed that in a former sermon, and, and I don't think that the right thing for us to do today would be to stop and pause and talk about signs and wonders and think about miracles. And even though your brain is probably going there right now, I think that would be to miss the point. And in fact, that's exactly what the crowd did in this story. They saw the sign, and then they missed the point. The miracle was a sign it was meant to to point people to the powerful message of the gospel that Paul was proclaiming but they saw the sign and they got all fixated on it and distracted by it and so I don't want us to do this morning to do that this morning but I do want to draw your attention to this this beautiful detail signs aside I want to draw your attention to the detail that that Paul saw the physical needs of this man and in his missionary work, he saw those missional needs and he, he spoke to them. He dealt with them. And that's not just a, a one-time occurrence. That, that's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Good gospel mission deals with the needs of the whole person. It's important for us to remember that. Now, of course, if, if all we had was this verse, you might say, well, that's a, I'm not so sure that you've proved your point biblically and you'd be right in saying that. But I want to draw your attention to the ministry of Jesus. Just think about the Gospels as we are blessed to walk with Jesus and to hear him teach and to to see what he sees as he looks out at the crowds. And just think about that ministry and and how as Jesus went out, because Jesus knew better than any of us that the greatest needs of all of his listeners were not physical needs but spiritual needs. We know that, right? I hope you know that. Well, Jesus knew that better than any of us. And yet, as Jesus spoke to the spiritual needs of his listeners, simultaneously, Jesus was always moved by their physical needs. And the disciples are like, well, they they need something to eat, we better send them away. And he said, well, you feed them, we're going to feed them. Or people would come and they'd say, Jesus, you know, if if you will, you could make me well. And he says, I will be, be made well. Or, or, or Jesus would see the, the lame or, or a woman would reach out and, and touch his cloak and she's been bleeding for years and years and years. And yet, and Jesus is not bothered by her. Instead, he, he heals her body. And then he raises the, the man's daughter from the dead. Jesus was meeting physical needs all the time. Now, at the same time, Jesus chose not to be distracted by that. I think of Mark's gospel at the beginning when, remember, there was a crowd of people And they were like, hey, you know, there's a whole crowd of people here. They want you to heal them, Jesus. And he said, no, I need to go and teach. That's what I've come to do. So he didn't allow that meeting of physical needs to distract him from the mission. But as we look at his mission, we need to see clearly that he ministered to the whole person. That's the example he set. Such that the Apostle James could write, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so James is saying, you know, faith without works is dead. And to prove that point, he points to ministry. And he says, and we see this in our ministry, don't we? We have to minister to the whole person. And in fact, before Paul went on this missions trip, he had to confer with the apostles. He wanted to share with them what his plan was. and, And so actually they said, we give you the green light, Paul, go on mission, but they gave him one stipulation. Do you remember what it was? We find it in Galatians chapter 2. Paul describes, I went to the apostles, the apostles I, I, I told them what I was going to do, and they said, only they asked us, he says, Galatians 2.10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Meaning, as Paul went out on this missions trip, the apostles said, you got the green light from us, Paul. You can go, A- absolutely go. We bless you as you go. But if you are going to claim to minister in Jesus' name, don't you dare forget the poor. Don't you dare turn a blind eye to those needs as they're in front of you. I've read this quote to you before. I'm going to share it with you again because I think it's that good. Um, it's a missionary by the name of Amy Carmichael. And she was being criticized for, um, for meeting the physical needs in the mission field. And some folks were saying, hey, you should just you should turn away from that. Just focus on the gospel. Focus on the gospel. And she wrote back and she said, one cannot save and then pitchfork souls into heaven souls are more or less securely fastened to bodies. And as you cannot get the souls out and then deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. Meaning, you know, I could just imagine her on the mission field is like, I, I've, I've got these people, I've got this orphan and they're starving and I can't just simply speak to their soul and, and, and lead them to Jesus but, and, and then pretend they're not starving to death. I have to, I've got to feed them and teach them about Jesus. I've got to minister to the whole person, the whole felt needs, and maybe you're here today, and you know forget missions, maybe you're here today, and you're the person with the felt needs, and you're here and you you want to, is there something here, and maybe you're expecting to hear some you know philosophical thing, but you're thinking this there's nothing here for for the needs that i'm facing facing me today I just want you to know that our God is a God that cares about your needs, and he cares that you don't have a home. He cares that you're, you don't have a job. He cares that you're looking for those things. He does. He cares. And the Apostle Paul was shaped by that and he looked out as he preached and he saw someone who was suffering and he saw God as an answer for your suffering. We need to remember that. That being said, I'm actually heading out this week. Uh, it worked out well. We didn't plan this, but I'm heading out this week on Wednesday to visit with our missionary partners in Dominican, the Kingsview And as we go there, I'm not just going to meet with their pastors, though we will do that. But we're also going to go and visit the orphanage. And we're going to go visit the schools. Because good gospel mission ministers to the whole person. That's the first lesson we learn in this story. Second, gospel mission deflects all glory to God. So he's preaching, and he sees this man, and he tells him to stand. And the man stands and walks, and everybody is naturally quite excited and they're full of awe and wonder. The problem is they direct all of that awe and wonder not at God who has given this miracle but at the Apostle Paul who was just the messenger. And they get really excited and they're talking in their own language and conferring and and uh, then they, the text says, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they mistake Paul and Barnabas for Hermes and Zeus and then they call for the the... Priest to Zeus, and they start making their arrangements for sacrifices. And at some point, Paul and Barnabas, who clearly don't speak Lyconian, realize, oh, no. You know, like at, at the first point, when people start talking Lyconian, it seems that Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was happening. But then when they see the priest coming with the cow, and he's getting ready to make the sacrifices, they're like, what are you, they, what are you doing? And they tell him, stop. And if you want to understand why this crowd responded the way that they did, uh, in my study this week, I came across this great explanation And I'm going to read, this is a long quote, but I want to read it to you because this is just fascinating and helping to understand. One commentator explains, approximately half a century before Paul's first missionary journey, Ovid retold an ancient legend that may have been well known in southern Galatia and may in good part explain the wildly emotional response of the people to Paul and Barnabas. According to the legend, Zeus and Hermes once came to the Phrygian hill country disguised as mortals seeking lodging. Though they asked at a thousand homes, none took them in. Finally, at a humble cottage of straw and reeds, an elderly couple, Philemon and Bacchus, freely welcomed them with a banquet that strained their poor resources. In appreciation, the gods transformed the cottage into a temple with a golden roof and marble columns. Philemon and Bacchus, they appointed priests and priestess of the temple, who instead of dying became an oak and a linden tree. As for the inhospitable people, the gods destroyed their houses. So that, that is part of the ancient folklore in this neighborhood. And it helps you understand why when these guys see these two messengers coming in, performing these signs and wonders, why all of a sudden they realize we'd better show some hospitality. Get the priest to Zeus We're not going to blow this like they did previously. We're not going to have our homes destroyed. We're going to get this right. And so they jump into full celebration mode. But as interesting as their response is, I want to draw your attention to the response of Paul and Barnabas because this is where the real lesson is for us. I want to remind you what happened last week, just so we can hear the story as we should. Remember last week, Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Iconium. And do you remember that the city turned against them and they started gossiping and slandering and it was a public smear campaign and they were ministering through like verbal assault and it, the whole thing was a mess until finally the town was so turned against them that they were going to stone them to death. And that's when Paul and Barnabas left. Do you remember that story? It was just last week. So we'll put these together now. So they just, they run out of that city for their lives and they come into Lystra and, and they get up and preach and, heal this man, and all of a sudden, what happens in Lystra? The crowds are loving them. The crowds are loving them. People, they're adoring them. Everybody's so excited, and they're, they're celebrating, and they're giving them respect and, and admiration and even glory. Just connect the dots. Imagine what that must have felt like for Paul and Barnabas after all of these stops and all of this discouraging ministry. First in Antioch, they were chased out of Antioch, and now Iconium, and now here they are. And suddenly the crowd just thinks they're incredible, and in that moment, there would have been a very, very real temptation for them to say, this feels good. This is, a, this is a nice change. I'm inclined to agree with G. Campbell Morgan. And he writes, the greatest peril threatening these men was that which came to them in the hour when men suggested that they should worship them. That is the supreme peril to the Christian worker. It would have been so easy to gain power and notoriety to take this worship and abandon the pathway of persecution and stones. I think he's exactly right. I think that there was far more danger in this episode in Lystra than there ever was in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas had an opportunity to trade the cross for a temporary crown. They had an opportunity to trade the the mocking For gifts and applause. The opportunity was right there. And as we think about missions, we need to keep this in the back of our mind because we all crave glory a little more than we'd like to admit. We do. We see it on the small scale when when a young person goes on a missions trip and and they come home and they make all their profile pictures, you know, them holding a little orphan, you know, smiling for the photo for the friends. And if you're a young person who's done that, I was a young person who did that. If you go back through my Facebook photos, you'll find a photo of me with little Brasenia, you know, getting the applause of the world with all the likes. We want that glory. On a larger scale, we see that as organizations drift further and further away from the gospel in order to curry favor with the world. I think of the YMCA, which was a Christian mission organization, but which distanced itself slowly and steadily from the gospel. You see, we fall in love with the applause, and the world doesn't applaud the gospel sermon, but sometimes they will applaud the acts of charity. And that applause can become addicting, and it can cause drift. So in verse 15, Paul and Barnabas turn to the crowd, and they ask, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That response teaches us a lesson that we must not miss. Gospel mission deflects all glory to God. Um, right here, I'm just going to acknowledge there's something going on. The, the best thing that we can do in here is just, uh, just focus and, and pray and leave people out there to do what, what needs to be done. I don't know what it is. I'm just going to pray generally for what something's happening in the hall. Is that correct? Yeah, let's just pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we just pray for the the need in the hallway. Um, Lord, we just ask for protection for those involved. Lord, I pray that you would um, use the people who are are in this room. Lord, I just think of the doctors and nurses and first responders who were right there able to respond. I'm thankful for your mercy in that, God. And I pray that you would work. And Lord, I pray that you would... um, lead the, the ambulance to be here quickly and that there would be no obstructions, no delays. Lord, that we would be well out of the way for them to do with what you've prepared them to do. Uh, and Lord, for us, I pray that you would help us to um, focus, to look to your word. Um, Lord, that we'd be able to turn our attention to this and trust that you have people who are turning their attention to that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, uh, so I, I'm a pastor's kid, so... I grew up in the church, and I remember on a couple of different occasions there'd be there's a medical emergency in the church, and I know what it's like to sit there in the pew and wonder, we should be doing something. Uh, and I just assure you, this is the best thing we can do. It, we've, we've prayed, and now we're going to stay out of the way because God's gifted people to do what they need to do. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to keep going, and that's not heartless. It's, it's the right thing to do. So I'm going to turn to our third point in gospel mission. Gospel mission teaches honestly about the cost of discipleship. This is the lesson that most gripped my heart as I was studying this week. In verses 19 to 20, we read that the same crowd that was trying to worship Paul at the beginning of the story goes on to stone him to death or at least they thought they stoned him to death. It tells us that they, they stoned him, and when they thought he was dead, they dragged him out to the city, and they, they left him there on the ground, his mangled body out there on the ground. And his, the disciples, they run out, and Barnabas, and you can imagine their concern, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking about their brother. They run out there, they see him on the ground, and he's looking for all the world like he's dead. The crowd thought he was dead, and yet as they draw close, they're shocked to see that he's, he's breathing. And they pick him up, and they... Get him up, and, and he says, You'll know, bring me back into the city. I got to get my things. And then we read this shocking detail. This is so incredible. Verses uh, 20 to 22. It says, On the next day, they went on with Barnabas to Derbe. The next day, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, I read through that and and I some of it was just lost on me. So I want to make sure it's not lost on you today. Try to picture the scene for a moment. So, without being grotesque, they they stone Paul and they think he's dead. So you You know, you you can imagine what a person looks like. When they've been throwing jagged rocks at him, the whole crowd agrees this guy is dead. They pick him up, they drag him out, they leave his mangled body outside the city. What does a person look like after an experience like that? He's mangled, he's bruised, he's swollen, he's bleeding. He's, He's probably unrecognizable. If you've ever watched a UFC fight, this is worse than the worst bloodiest loss in UFC history. That's what Paul looks like. They they get there. They scrape him up off the ground, and you would expect Paul to say, all right, time to go home. And he says, back into the city, got to get my things. Derby's waiting for us. And so they Take him back into the city, and then they proceed to the next town. The very next day, they proceed to the very next town. They're they're dragging him. In Galatians, he talks about having the marks on his body of persecution. Undoubtedly, he's referring to these. These are some of them. He's probably walking with a limp now. He's he's mangled. In fact, when you read old accounts of what Paul looked like as a man, they talk about how he was this bow-legged limping. I would imagine a lot of that is due to incidents like this. He's mangled, he walks into this city, and he looks at this new city, Derby, and they're looking at him. And what does he do? He proceeds to preach the exact same message that almost got him killed in the previous city. He, he lets it rip, he preaches the gospel, and the text tells us he, many men and women become disciples under his ministry in Derby. What courage and conviction must that take? To knowing that this, is, this could cost me everything, and yet he looks him in the eyes and he goes for it again and again and again. But as incredible as that is, I hope you've got that picture in your mind, I think the most incredible detail is what he does after he preaches in Derby. Did you notice? Look again at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they what? Returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch which is a detail that I just rushed past in my first reading. But just picture that. So now he preaches in Derby, and now the disciples, they're kind of helping him, and he's, he's like, he makes his way back, and he walks past the place where they left him for dead into this city where all the people who tried to kill him, they're all still there. He, he marches right into the city, and he encourages the church, and he builds them up. And then he leaves from that city, and he goes to Iconium, Remember Iconium? That's the place where he was publicly smeared and insulted and mocked and where they they made a plan to stone him. He marches right into Iconium, encourages the church there, builds them up. Then he marches into Antioch. This isn't the Antioch that sent him on mission. This is the Antioch that at the end of chapter 13 forcibly pushed him out of the city. So he's marching back into all these places where he is hated and he is building up the church. And what is he saying to them? Verse 22 tells us that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and listen, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And you got to imagine, those words must have carried a bit more weight as Paul is speaking through this swollen face with his permanent limp. Good gospel mission teaches honestly about the cost of discipleship. Paul told the truth about what it meant to follow Jesus. He, he, he spoke it, and then he walked it, and the church saw it in him. Now, you contrast that example of gospel mission with the example of gospel mission that we often see on, you know, your, your television stations, your, your miracle network, the, this prosperity gospel mission where people in their private jets are flying into Africa and they're telling people that if you follow Jesus, then you can be rich just like me and healthy just like me and happy just like me and then they hop in the plane and they fly back and we call that missions, but that is not missions. At least it's not God's mission. That's not the mission that Jesus sent us on. That's not the gospel that Jesus told us to teach. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, Paul didn't sugarcoat the gospel. And this is really important for us. I, because a lot of times, this is on the mission field, but now I'm going to talk about your, your personal evangelism too, right? We are often guilty of, of trying this little bait and switch move with the world. It's like, you know, hey, here's this thing that you really want, neighbor. Neighbor. Come and get this thing, and then wait a moment. I'll try to teach you. I'll teach you about Jesus. Or I'm not going to mention any of the stuff that you will find offensive. I'm not going to mention the idols in your life that are going to need to come crashing down. We're going to deal with this, and then maybe five years from now you'll realize. And then that's not. That is not the way that missions happens in the New Testament. We're called to to tell the truth, the the glorious truth, but the costly truth. And Paul was clear about the cost. And as he limped back into these cities with the scars covering his body, he reminded these new believers that the road to glory ends in glory, but it it must first pass through the cross. Now, it doesn't mean we're all going to suffer the same afflictions that Paul suffered. I I haven't, I'm going to hazard a guess that nobody in this room has. I'm not saying that in order to have, have authentic faith, you need to suffer as Paul suffered. But what I am saying and what Paul was saying to these churches is that the call to follow Jesus is a call to lay down everything else, to pick up a cross. It's a call to die to who you used to be so that you can receive resurrection life through Christ and become who he's made you to be. It's glorious, but it's it's difficult. And we need to be clear about that as we talk to people. As you're ministering to people on your street, as we do our ministry even with, our, with friends of the lighthouse, as we do our ministry with, with your friends in your neighborhood or at work, we can't, we can't bait them in and, and try and trick them into taking this thing that they want and then trying to attach Jesus to it later. No, Jesus is what, is what the world needs, and his call is a costly call. It's the third lesson we see here. Gospel mission teaches honestly about the cost of discipleship. And then fourth and finally, we learn that gospel mission is committed to the health of the local church. I thought this was a really helpful lesson in the passage. I want to help you see. As Paul returns through all of these cities that he's ministered to, I mean, he could have taken a much easier route. I would say any route would have been easier than going back through Lystra. And yet he makes his way back through these cities where he was persecuted. Why? The text says, when he had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So he goes through these cities and he appoints elders. And we learn about the primary responsibility of elders when Paul writes to Titus, who is overseeing the church in Crete. And and Paul told Titus, you need to set apart elders. And he said, an elder is someone who, who must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. See, Paul recognized that he wasn't going to be around for the long term. He went into these cities, and he, he gave them all that he got, and he taught the scriptures, and we learn later in Acts, he held nothing back, right? He taught them the, he taught them the hard stuff, the, everything, and he did, stayed as long as he could, but, but Paul knew that I can't stay forever, he's, he's got to move on to the next assignment. And so Paul, in his wisdom, said we need to appoint teachers in these places who can can faithfully open the word of god who can teach you what's right and who can correct when errors creep into the church and so paul was committed to that to faithfully building up the ongoing health of the local church and this is an often overlooked aspect of paul's ministry it's a vital aspect as we think about what healthy missions looks like healthy missions has an eye for the long-term future one commentator notes we gain a false picture of paul's strategy if we think of him as rushing rapidly on missionary journeys from one place to the next, leaving small groups of half-taught converts behind him, it was his general policy to remain in one place until he had established the firm foundation of a Christian community or until he was forced to move by circumstances beyond his control. So he's, he's aiming long term. He's building up the church to maybe put feet on this. As soon as you open up a, a church website or a church Facebook page, you, in, inevitably you start to receive emails and messages. And I, I would say I receive a, an email or a Facebook message or a voicemail from, a, from a, a missionary at least once a month, which is good. Praise God. There's lots of amazing things that are happening. Um, we've got our partners pretty well set, and so we haven't jumped into a lot of these. But that said, as these things come in, it exposes you to this wide breadth of missions work that's happening in the world, And I'll tell you, the first thing that I look at when I, receive one of these, when I receive one of these notifications is I look to see how attached to the local church is this mission. And I'm thinking that because of what I see in the book of Acts. So I think about chapter 13 when this church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas. This is a local church sending a missionary. And so the first thing I look for is, is this missionary being sent by any local church? Like, did any, is anybody sending, or is this, just a, is this just a whim? And then I look about, on the receiving end, and I say, do they have any intention of working with the local church? Like is the plan to be building up the, the local church, to, be, to do what Paul was doing here, equipping disciples and raising up leaders? For, or is the plan just built around one big personality? Is the plan just built around one shiny parachurch organization that's going to do some things for a season and then disappear? And, it, and if that's the plan, if there's no attachment to the local church, then I'll usually stop my reading right there. Because as I look at the New Testament, you can't separate good gospel mission from the local church. And I know it's trendy in our day and age to disparage the church. We like to talk about all of the flaws, complain about all the inefficiencies, and there are flaws and there are inefficiencies in the church. That's true. But any plan to reach the world with the gospel that does not result in the establishment of healthy local churches is a plan with no biblical foundation. Because Paul, when he went on mission, what did he do? He established churches. He established churches. And I know the church is flawed because it's full of people like me and people like you too. But the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the city on a hill that is made is designed to shine in a dark world and i'll tell you i i mean i see it i see flaws in the church too and you say well you haven't seen what i've seen maybe i haven't but can i tell you jesus more clearly than any of us has seen the flaws of the church and he's seen he's seen the flaws that we don't even see he's seen right to the right to the core of the mess of it all You say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Hey, nobody could say that more clearly than Jesus. He sees the church. But you know, it's fascinating. What Jesus did when he saw the flaws of the church is Jesus didn't just then write off the church and walk away wagging his head saying, what a a bunch of hypocrites. You know what Jesus did when he saw the flaws of the church? He gave his life for her. He bled to wash her clean so that she could become who she was made to be. Jesus loves the church. And Paul saw that, and Paul gave his life to his missional work, and the missional work resulted in the building up of local churches, just like this little one here in Aurelia. And, and I'll tell you, you look at the track record, and you think, well, what on earth? What's, what's the end result of these little fledgling churches that Paul builds in Lystra, and, and Iconium, and Antioch, and Antioch over here? What's What's the end result? Well, the end result is that 2,000 years later, here we are on the other side of the world preaching the same gospel that Paul was preaching that almost got him killed in Lystra. These little flimsy, fledgling churches, and they don't look so powerful, do they? I mean, I I look around, it doesn't look like much to the, the naked eye, but these little churches, Jesus said, the gates of hell won't stand against them. These little churches changed the world. These little churches are the place where the word of God goes forth and the spirit moves in the hearts of people and they're like little, little outposts of mission in the world. And so healthy gospel mission is committed to the ongoing health of the local church. Not committed to, to one vibrant personality that's gonna go into a place and then move on and everybody's longing for, for that person to come back. No, it's, it's, he's building up a church so that people would recognize where the power is. So when we step back from our and sometimes we can overcomplicate things and we step back from our complicated plans of mission and look honestly at the new testament It's, it's actually wonderfully simple we go to people we go to the nations and we minister to the whole person just like jesus did we bring the gospel but we bring the gospel to people and we meet them where they're at and we deflect all the glory to him. We don't receive any praise from men as we meet needs, as we bring the gospel. We point people to Jesus again and again. And we preach the gospel. We preach it in all its fullness. We hold nothing back. We preach honestly about the cost of discipleship and the glory that is waiting for us. We do it until a healthy church is established. We put leaders in place who will teach the gospel, who will, who will correct where there's error and who will further the mission. And then... Having done that, repeat. That's that's the New Testament model for mission. There is a simplicity there, and we see it in the book of Acts. And by God's grace, we have missional partners who are doing just that. So as we close, I want to encourage you to pray for our partners. Pray for Mile One Mission in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's what they're doing. They're they're planting local churches and raising up leaders. Praise God for that. Pray for that work. Pray for uttermost international. um, Southeast Asia. Pray for Pastor Paul Massey there as he raises up these 100 pastors with him. Pray for what they're doing at the school there. They've got hundreds and hundreds of kids that are meeting the felt needs in the community and preaching the gospel. And pray for Kingsview in the Dominican Republic. Pray for me as I go there this week. I'm thankful for the work that God's doing in and around the world. I'm thankful that even on a, even on a day like today, we can trust that the Lord is working and he's moving. And I, I want to just close our time with prayer, so... Bow your heads with me now. Heavenly Father, I just wanna I just wanna say what we're all thinking, Lord. We're we're praying for uh, this man and for his health. And Lord, we're praying that you would just do a mighty work, that you'd comfort his family and encourage. And Lord, I, I'm thankful for the way you provide for us. Um, Lord, and I'm reminded right now that, Lord, life is Life is fleeting, and we don't, know, we don't know when we're going to be faced with a medical emergency. Um, what we do know is we need to be right with you. God, I just pray that you would powerfully work. Um, powerfully work in this man, powerfully work in those who are with him, um, powerfully work in those who even right now are feeling concerned. Lord, I pray that you'd move. And Lord, in the midst of all of that, here we are. We're looking to this passage, which feels like uh, as far removed from what's happening in our context as it could possibly be. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be learning the lessons that you have for us in this passage. Lord, that as we go, there would be some things that would just sink in and would God would help us to see you more clearly, help us to know you more clearly, more powerfully. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, and we just ask for your help right now. I pray that as we respond in song, Lord, that you would be pleased with the praises of your people. Lord, and that even as we sing gospel truths, Lord, that you would stir our hearts and point us to you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?